Well, let me start uh, this morning by saying that um, um, I, I, I love that scripture that, that uh, Lloyd read. And it's actually not our scripture reading this morning, or it's not our, our sermon text this morning, but as I was preparing for the message today and reading more broadly around it, I couldn't escape the fact that that text is so preparatory for the message and also um, for uh, events, recent events in my life that I wanted to take a moment and, and share with you. <clears throat> so back on Halloween of 2018, I had a pretty severe back injury and left me somewhat disabled for a couple months. Um, and uh, I thought not coincidentally along with that, some pretty extreme exhaustion. And uh, I mean, I slept all the time, woke, thought about a nap. I'm sure Colleen was going to uh, diagnose extreme laziness and I wouldn't have, um, have blamed her if she did, but she was incredibly patient all the way up until the holidays. Even Christmas lights didn't get up in the house, which was pretty unusual for us. Well, about Christmas time, some other symptoms started developing that, that uh, made us think we should look into some stuff. So it started a series of doctor's appointments and uh, beginning with my local doctor, lots of tests, referral to an ENT surgeon. That ENT surgeon referred me to a local neurologist. That neurologist seemed pretty concerned, ordered some other tests, and then eventually referred me up to the Stanford uh, Neuroscience Center. Well, that uh, led to a full day of tests. And uh, initially, coming back, stating that, that uh, the local neurologist was pretty unfounded, and we felt good about that. Blood work looked great, actually, by the numbers. I thought, how did that happen with Christmas food? But it did. And um, so we felt pretty good. But then, not too long after that, the helpful little My Stanford Health app started pinging with results, uh, particularly ones that took a little bit longer coming that they had sent off to the Mayo Clinic. And there was this one um, test that came back reading uh, excessive free light chain ratio. So we were on the phone calling, what does this mean? Looks interesting, kind of an odd name. And uh, we actually went several days without being able to reach a doctor, which in our experience is very strange with uh, with Stanford. So we did probably what most of you guys do. We went to the internet. I'm not sure that's terribly helpful, but um, it did pique our interest to actually speak with a doctor and get a diagnosis beyond what Google seemed to be telling us. So a few days went by, then we did get uh, a call, and uh, it was from the amyloid center at Stanford. Now, our family's been in and out of Stanford for about 22 years on a very regular basis, and I had never heard of the amyloid center. But there we found ourselves. Um, 
a uh, kind of a small uh, uh, corridor off of the Lake Wilbur Cancer Center. <clears throat> and there we did get a, a clear diagnosis of multiple myeloma with, with a amyloidosis complication. That's a mouthful. The last part of that being uh, the really rare part, only about 2,000 cases in the U.S. are diagnosed. It is serious, and though there is not currently a cure, in more recent years there have been great success in putting it in long-term remission. So, of course, we're going to pursue the prescribed course of treatments, um, six months of regimen of chemotherapy with weekly trips to Stanford, and we would certainly appreciate your prayers, and not just for healing, but for encouragement, steadfastness, for endurance. So let me say, here at Grace, we are a church that believes in the sovereignty of God. Amen? News like this does not make us despair as if God has abandoned us. Quite the contrary, it makes us stand in awe and wonder at what he's doing in our lives and, 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 and perhaps moving in a way, in a sanctifying way beyond anything he has previously done. So as I listened to Lloyd read this morning's text, I was encouraged. And I share this with you uh, you know, not to be dramatic, but because I think this is, this is really important for every believer. For we will all eventually be confronted with the prospect of death. And for, excuse me, for the believer, we have the unfathomable gift of doing so with courage and hope. In fact, Paul says, with good courage just to give it emphasis. When I finally got a diagnosis, I, I wasn't elated that I had a blood disease, obviously, but I did feel a sense of great elation. And I believe the source of that elation was the realization of this confidence, the certainty in my heart that it didn't matter. I knew who I was in Christ, secure, never to be separated from the love of God in this body or the eternal dwelling prepared for me, I knew I was prepared. And here I simply rejoice with the apostles' words from verse 5, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. But events like this can give us moments of pause. God-given opportunities to look afresh at perhaps long unchallenged assumptions about our lives and God's purpose and plans for us. And I can tell you, from my perspective, one of those moments of pause is not surprisingly uh, a realization of, a tangible realization of the brevity of life and the amount of time and opportunity we are given in this life. And that's where I find chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians so helpful. So 
before we move on to our text for this morning, I, I do want to return to Lloyd's reading in the first 10 verses. I want to make sure we understand these 10 verses and the implications particularly of verse 10 and the judgment seat of Christ. Let me try and break it down into a couple points, sort of. Number one, Paul had a supreme confidence in the provision, in God's provision, whether he lived or died. In his earthly, temporal, vulnerable tent, if his earthly, temporal, vulnerable tent was destroyed, God had waiting for him a permanent, enduring, heavenly dwelling. It was a dwelling that meant an end to the groaning of the earthly body and all the accompanying sins, frustrations, and weaknesses. The death of body meant being fully, perfectly, eternally clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And though these were promises yet to be fully experienced, he moved through this life with courage, confidence, and eager anticipation. For we walk by faith, not by sight, Paul says. How courageously did he face the prospect of death and the destruction of the body? Paul looked forward to it. He longed for it. And frankly, he says, whether I live or die, the consuming desire of my heart and aim remains the same, to please the Lord. Now, concurrently with this confidence, we see in verse 10, Paul is also aware of another motivating reality before him the judgment seat of Christ. And so we understand this correctly. Let's define the judgment seat of Christ. Let me read it again. For we must, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. A few things to note. The strong terms of the text stress the inevitability and comprehensiveness of the event. He uses the words must and all to make clear that for every believer a day is coming where we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It is not just for apostles or pastors or church leaders. All must appear. Second, to appear means to make manifest to make visible or to reveal. The NIV commentary in 2 Corinthians says to be made manifest means to not just to appear, but to be laid bare, stripped of every outward facade of respectability and openly released in the full and true reality of one's character. Now, it's not that... It's not that we will suddenly be made manifest to our omniscient God, right? God knows everything about us. He knows our hearts. He knows our motives. Each of us will discover the real verdict of our own ministry and our own motives. Hebrews 4.13 says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account Third, believers are not judged for sin at the judgment seat of Christ. And we have to be crystal clear on this. 
every sin of every believer was judged at the cross. When God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And 1 Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. But those, but those salvation is not by works. Works are the inevitable result of true salvation, are they not? This is where an apparent discord between Paul and James on the subject of faith and works evaporates. Fruit in our lives is expected by Christ. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It brings glory to the Father and is evidence to the world of the dynamic reality of divine grace working within our lives. Jesus said in John 15.8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Fourth, the phrase each one stresses the individual personal nature, not collective judgment. This is not a spectacle played out before creation and other believers. Frankly, I imagine every other believer is going to be pretty consumed with their own appointment before the Lord to be paying any attention to yours. I don't know how long this will take, whether it's a thousand years with the Lord, whether it's the, the slightest fraction of a second or has no association with solar time at all. But what I do know in that moment, there will be crystal clear clarity. And we, like Peter, by the Sea of Tiberias, will respond in humility and worship. Lord, you know everything. Fifth, the believer's reward will be based on what has been done in the body. Again, this judgment is not judicial. It is to be recompensed to receive back what is due for deeds done in the body. There was that antinomian heresy in the early church. And it taught that uh, we would treat our bodies with contempt or to disregard them altogether. But Paul makes clear in Romans 12.1 to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Six, the believer's reward will be based on what, he is, on what has been done, good or evil. And by evil, Paul isn't using the word as, a, as, as moral good or moral evil. What he means by that is uh, to be evil to be worthless or useless. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he makes this distinction clear and it's very helpful. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, read along with me. Paul says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, 
which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So to be clear, our only foundation for this Christian life is the Lord Jesus Christ and his propitiatory death on the cross for our sins. But Christians are called to build on it. Think about it. We have the spirit of the living God within us. Born again by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, what should be our expectation for that power in and through our lives? And as we consider the judgment seat of Christ and the unveiling of our motives for all we have done in this life, perhaps the big question for us regarding life here and life in our heavenly dwelling to come is which is the defining reality of our lives. That reality will determine everything. It will determine how we live. Here's the question before us. Do we live for this side of eternity or do we live for eternity with Christ? And so with optimistic courageous, certain expectation of the promise of an eternal heavenly dwelling ever with the Lord and a confident expectation of an accounting with the Lord fueled by an ever-present desire to please him. Paul launches into verse 11 and we into our message for this morning. Somebody want to tell John he may not be preaching next week? <laughs> we'll see how we do well let me read this last half of our text verses 11 through 21 therefore knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade others but what we are is known to God and I hope it is known also to your conscience we are not commending ourselves to you again but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, regard him, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ, 
God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we really see leading up to this that God is preparing us for the work to which he will one day judge us. He not only prepares us, he equips us. And that is the amazing thing. Looking at verse 11 through 12, again it says, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what is, but what we are is known to God and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. The sincerity of God's work is best communicated through integrity-filled, trusted messengers. And Paul understood this. He was, he was a guy that, uh, reading his letters, you can see throughout his ministry, he was constantly dogged by false teachers. He was constantly dogged by the Judaizers who wanted to force their version of this Judaism-Christianity hybrid upon him. They wanted to challenge him and the authority of his apostleship at every turn. And he knew that his reputation and the maligning of that reputation could potentially have the effect on really the effectiveness of his ministry. But he knew one thing about the false teachers. Corrupt motives always produced a corrupt message. And Paul, in his sincerity and truthfulness, knew he was sharing the word of God. So we have to remember the importance of our reputation. It's not that it's so that we are admired. It is so others will have confidence in the sincerity of our message. I thought I'd share one personal story with you about a guy named Dana. When I was uh, a, um, just out of high school, freshman and junior college, I was, uh, at, th at that point, I, was, I, I, I worked through high school as a bag boy. And um, great job, actually. It paid, paid really well. And uh, I had gotten a promotion to a clerk's job. And uh, <clears throat> it gave me the opportunity to switch to the graveyard shift which I thought was pretty cool. Go to school, I could surf in the afternoon, go play with friends, show up at work at midnight to eight, all good. I'm 19, who needs to sleep? <laughs> well, apparently I did because I got there about 11 o'clock at night on my first night, 
thought, I got an hour, I'll crash, I'll be good to go. About an hour and a half later, bam, 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 on the top of my BMW, uh, VW uh, Volkswagen. Some guys from the crew letting me know I was way late. So, made my way to the door. There, sliding open the glass, was the floor manager, Dana. I'd never met him before. And without catching me in the eye, he said, if what you are feeling is gratitude for a promotion, a raise, and a brand new opportunity, you have a very strange way of showing it. I felt about that big. And, you know, he said that without any sense of malice, any, any personal anger. And looking back on it, 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 it flowed from just a, a, uh, a universal understanding that my behavior was inappropriate and wrong. And uh, in the coming weeks, I came to really uh, appreciate Dana and, and really enjoy working for him. And the guy was a workhorse. He was a man of integrity. Um, he um, gave every cent uh, earned back to his employer and stayed focused on the job. And I think that's actually, you know, really where I began to establish some sense of a good work ethic. And uh, Dana also loved Jesus. And working on, working on the floor, he'd be tossing up cans like crazy, setting up displays, telling people about Jesus, what, what God had done for him, the, what the forgiveness of his sins meant. I'm listening pretending I'm not listening. One day we're putting up a shelf, two o'clock in the morning, and he starts asking me these questions. What do you think about all this? What do you think is gonna happen when you die? Well, in kind of a nonsensical response, which is pretty appropriate for me at that age, I said, I don't really understand any of this but I think what you're telling me is the truth. You see, the gospel that I would later respond to in faith and salvation was because Dana presented it with a spirit of sincerity and truth. I could, I could trust this messenger. I'll forever be grateful to the testimony of Dana's character, integrity, and sincerity, as well as his testimony of what Jesus did in his life. He knew that his reputation either spoke well of his Savior and his gospel, or it repudiated it. Well, going on in verse 13, Paul says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. What does it mean to be beside ourselves? 
What Paul means to be beside ourselves is to be, really to be seen as a fool without a sound or sober mind. It's something Paul was often accused of. Paul tells of his conversion before King Agrippa, and I love the story. I love his passion, and I actually love the response of the governor. Late in the book of Acts, chapter 26, Paul is pursued and hounded by his adversaries. He is arrested, imprisoned, and put at risk of execution. But God has ordained this as an opportunity to testify to the gospel before King Agrippa and eventually to the household of Caesar. Beginning in verse 12, he shares his experience with the risen Christ along the Damascus road. And he says, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Well, Paul goes on to tell King Agrippa of the resurrection of Christ and the hope of all peoples. You could hear the intensity and passion rise in Paul's voice. Acts then records the response of Festus, the governor, who was also there. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. And then turning, looking squarely at King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me? To be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these change. Paul, in uncompromising, unashamed terms, told the king of Israel what Jesus did for him and what he is willing to do for the king. Are we as bold? Remember, no matter how rational and sober you are, your passion and love for Christ will often label you a nut. Remember, even John the Baptist was said to have a demon. 
the same individuals accused Jesus of being demon-possessed throughout his ministry, as well as being accused by his relatives of having lost his senses. Remember 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. Remember, the world will have many criticisms for an individual sold out for Christ. You might have even heard the phrase, he's so heavenly minded, he's of no earthly good. Have you heard that one? Let me say this, living for eternity with Christ does not make you ineffective in this life. Sold out for Jesus does not make you worthless to the world. And despite what someone may say, being too heavily minded does not make you of no earthly good. In my experience, the most effective, most productive, most useful I've ever been to myself and to others is when I am 100% sold out for Jesus. Folks, the world will forever push back on the life committed to Christ. You will hear it from your friends, from your coworkers, from your employer, from your neighbor, from your, from your coworkers, from your relatives near and far. You'll hear it from those closest and dearest to you. You're taking it too far. You sound like a fanatic. You need to put religion in perspective. It is a discouragement and a ridicule born of the pit of hell. But it was discouragement that never seemed to dissuade the Apostle Paul from proclaiming the truth. We have to ask ourselves, are we afraid to be perceived a little strange? A little off? A bit of a fool? Paul says in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why was Paul never dissuaded? He was never dissuaded because of the love of Christ for him. Verse 14 and 15 says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul says in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Paul's sins had been paid for by the shed blood of Christ poured out for him. The express expression of God's love for him that expressed love of Christ paid out at such a cost, how could it not control him? Direct, motivate, inspire, animate all that he is and does. Or as Paul says to the Galatian church, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The controlling love of Christ now motivates Paul in all he does. And going on in verses 14 and 15, Paul comes to the grand conclusion that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This love of Christ that controls Paul controls all believers. 
drawing us, changing us, that we may no longer simply live for ourselves, but for the one who died for us, Jesus. This is Paul, the man who once hunted down and had Christians chained and put to death for disobeying his own form of religious conscription. He has now been so transformed by the love of Christ that he no longer lives for himself. Verses 16 and 17, Paul goes on. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is the transformative nature of this love. We no longer see each other in our flesh, in our fallen nature. I do believe Paul is referring here to how he used to see Jesus, perhaps just as a man, as a criminal. But when he says we, he must be meaning others. Perhaps the disciples who struggled to see beyond Jesus' human form. Where will we get more fish? How can we possibly pay the taxes? Jesus, you cannot go up to Jerusalem. Now they see Jesus, the power of his death and resurrection, and his love having changed everything. Let me ask you this. Do we see brothers and sisters in Christ around us as a new creation? Or do we see them still in their weakness and flesh? How about your spouse? Have you experienced the love of Christ? Are you forever beautiful, righteous, holy because of what he has done? and yet you won't look at your earthly betrothed through the same gospel lens? All this is from God, Paul says, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God has reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliations, of reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, have you ever asked yourself why I'm here? I mean, that, that's kind of one of those topics that's, that, that's forever in movies, books, philosophy, what have you. The secular world is continually answering that, and they have no answer in this life and in this world. The Westminster Catechism tells us what is the chief end of man? It answers to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I wholeheartedly believe this. But this is speaking of eternity. Upon the moment of salvation, certainly God could have taken me instantly into glory. Why the delay? Why am I here? And I love how Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher, words it. 
If God had willed it, each of us might have entered heaven at the moment of conversion. It was not absolutely necessary for our preparation for immortality that we should tarry here. It is possible for a man to be taken to heaven and to be found meet to become a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light, though he has just believed in Jesus. It is true that our sanctification is a long and continued process, and we shall not be perfected till we lay aside our bodies and enter within the veil. But nevertheless, had the Lord so willed it, he might have changed us from imperfection to perfection and have taken us to heaven at once. Why then are we here? Would God keep his children out of paradise a single moment longer than was necessary? Why is the army of the living God still on the battlefield when one charge might give them victory? Why are his children still wandering hither and thither through a maze when a solitary word from his lips would bring them into the center of their hopes in heaven? The answer is, they are here that they may live unto the Lord and may bring others to know his love. We remain on earth as sowers to scatter good seed, as plowmen to break up the fallow ground, as heralds publishing salvation. We are here as the salt of the earth to be a blessing to the world. We are here to glorify Christ in our daily life. We are here as workers for him and as workers together with him. Let us see that our life answers its end. Let us live earnest, useful, holy lives to the praise of the glory of his grace. This is the mind-blowing thing. Paul is telling us in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And not only that, he has entrusted to us the work, the, the message of reconciliation. Ask yourself, do you see your life here, your relationships, chance meetings, challenges merely as things to be navigated in pursuit of your own goals? Is that what we are called? Is that what we are called to as the redeemed of Christ, reconciled to God? Or do I see every relationship, every chance meeting as a gospel reconciling opportunity to share the love of Christ and the message of reconciliation? Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. What an incalculable privilege. We are ambassadors for Christ. We know why we are here. God is making his appeal to the world through us. I think that's plenty of reason to stick around. And Lord willing, he will give us many days and many opportunities to share the gospel and make him known. Have you been reconciled to God? There's only one way. And it's through his son, Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Paul concludes here. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He's cleared every hindrance. 
every stumbling block. For our sake, he, that's God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You pray with me. Heavenly Father, we just are overwhelmed. We are overcome by the love of Christ that saved us and reconciled us to the Father. Father, we've lived lives as enemies of the one who made us. The one who created us in his very own image. And Father, most of us have spent most of our lives running from you still. And you still hold out a hand of reconciliation. Father, I pray for anyone in this room today that has not been reconciled to Christ. We implore you, be reconciled to God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.